So obviously we have this K-shaped recovery where the middle segment is the part where you're just in generally suffering. So consumers still want the same quality for the products uh, they used to purchase, but they want it at lower price. The service industry uh, is definitely recovering better than all the other industries. Hello and welcome to the June episode of the Investor's Guide to China. I'm Catherine Young, Investment Director at Fidelity International. And I'm Marty Dropkin, Head of Equities, Asia Pacific. The soundbites you just heard were from some of Fidelity's global investment team, Ronald Chung, Monica Lee and Alex Shang, while on a research trip to Shanghai and Hefei in eastern Anhui province. Now, China's economic rebound certainly hasn't been as strong as many anticipated, but then again, as Marty and I have been discussing with our various guests more recently, we really shouldn't be that surprised. I mean, we weren't really expecting any major stimulus like we've seen in previous cycles, such as the GFC. However, the Chinese consumer was really the one that was expected to underpin and power this recovery. Yeah, that's right, Catherine. And those were some of the key messages and key focus areas from the team during that trip to to China, where we saw dozens of companies over a few days and and really had a chance to get those on the ground insights. I guess the other thing is, you know, while the services sector is expanding, consumer confidence is lagging, and I know we'll talk about that today. And the broader rebound now looks more like a K-shaped recovery, as Ronald mentioned in the introduction. Now, K-shaped recovery refers to when some segments do well, while others stagnate. And to chat further through all of this, I'd like to introduce Dale Nichols, who's one of our Hong Kong-based portfolio managers with a distinct focus on China, and Hiomi Ji, who's based in Singapore and an expert on the Chinese consumer sector, also a portfolio manager with us. Hi, both of you. Hi, Catherine. Good to see you. Hello. Hi, Catherine. Hi, Marty. And hi to you both. Dale, this was the first time for you back in China in a long time. It was great to be on the ground. We've done lots of Zoom meetings over the past few years, but to really connect face-to-face with management was uh, was great. And as always, you know, a chance to meet some new companies. But, you know, we found the management team's really responsive, had some really engaging meetings. Um, and as you mentioned, obviously out in Hefei, so chance to move outside of a first-tier city and see things on the ground. And Hiobi, how about you? Yeah, this was my second trip back to China after reopening. The last time I went there, it was really focused on meeting with some consumer names who have been growing their presence uh, during COVID. But this time it was more broad meeting with more than 30 meetings during a week across a few different cities. And most importantly, I could be reassured with our capability on the ground with so many analysts joining the team over the past few years and investors across all over the world. We had more than 100 people joining this trip virtually and in person. So these discussions amongst the investors ourselves was really great. Hear me and Dale, before we talk more about sort of the findings and the meetings, et cetera, that you guys had, let's hear from some of our other fund managers and analysts that joined you on this recent trip. Tina Tian, Portfolio Manager. We've seen a clear trend of uh, consumption trade down. And um, we're also seeing e-commerce platforms um, actively responding to this trend by focusing more on price-competitive products, which has led to more competition. Casey McLean, Portfolio Manager. 
consumer started to weaken in, in uh, mid-February and has, has subsequently weakened every month since. This is being you from ESG team. I think post-COVID, people, they value more quality of life. They, they want more happiness. They will think more about how can brands and their products affect people's life. My name is Leia. I'm working as a multi-ass analyst. I think we have those very strong um, pent-up demand uh, in the first quarter. So it's okay for consumer um, recovery to take a breath, if you will. So Dale, over to you. We heard some mixed messages there, didn't we, about the consumer. I'm wondering, how does that translate to you? Any additional insights that you picked up while you were in Shanghai and, and China yeah, I mean, it definitely is a mixed message. Um, I agree with a lot of the sentiment, but for me, it was better than I feared in general. Just given what the markets have done, I was expecting things could be worse. I'm still positive on, on a recovery for the consumer. There is, you know, there is a, definitely a, a confidence issue, particularly in that sort of that mid-range consumer, as we've heard. The consumer is cashed up. As always on our trips to China, we, we, we find new interesting companies. I've got you know, work to do on a frozen food company that uh, looks, looks really interesting. So I'm actually pretty positive on markets, you know, given, given the setup, given how much stocks have corrected. You know, overall, I think things look pretty good. It was also interesting, I found the more senior chairman were more positive. And I hope that's because they've seen more cycles, maybe more faith in, in some support from the government as well. Do you get a sense, Dale, that in fact, those senior management teams might have an in in terms of the policy direction going forward? You know, that's what you would hope. They've seen cycles in the past. They've seen, you know, the times at which, you know, the government, you know, recognizes it needs to do more. Uh, they recognize that that, that growth is, uh, is is important. And, uh, you know, I think, you know, you would hope that, again, having, having that experience gives them more faith in uh, the outlook going forward. Yeah, well, that and and something we've talked about, all of us have talked about is, is that sort of tendency for people to be a little bit more momentum driven in China, isn't it? So you'd hope somebody with more experience can take a more balanced approach. Kiyomi, over to you on the consumer side. What did you pick up? Surprisingly healthy, even though it's a relatively small third tier city, it was the second largest population inflow just after Hangzhou last year. So that local economy is really um, healthy and booming. But from that end, I thought the property sector that I could experience and saw in Hefei was very, very interesting. We all hear that Chinese government should put more stimulus on the property sector as it is the biggest net asset and also consumption spending for average Chinese consumers. Having said that, when we went to Hefei, indeed this project was sold out the day that we visited. They just launched it a couple of days ago, but it was all sold out. And yes, the local economy was doing very well because they are supported by many new technology uh, economies. Having said that, the Hefei government has been very quietly removing a lot of restrictions in terms of home ownership, mortgage, and also pricing, which make the consumers who have real intent to buy for their staying or investing to really get in. So I think this type of easing and support measures in this biggest category like property, which is estimated to account for almost 25-30% of China GDP, including the peripheral sector, is really important to restore the consumer's confidence. Dale, what about other regions in China? We know that 
you know, local government funding is, has been a subject in the news lately. There's some weakness there. I'm wondering, is what Hiomi just described in Hefei, do you see that everywhere in China or is it geographic specific? Yeah, Hefei is, is definitely, you know, as Hiomi was saying, one of the better examples is it, it's a very well-managed city. Uh, the government has done an amazing job of bringing in innovative companies. It's really become sort of an EV, you know, electric vehicle hub in terms of the whole supply chain. And, you know, they're very much on the, on the front foot. So it was, uh, you know, I think that's a good example. Hyomi mentioned what they're doing on the property side. I think that's a great example of, you know, sort of managing, you know, the, the, the property sector overall. So I hope that's a, a, that's a good case study uh, for other cities. But, you know, it's a better example. We see, you know, things are, things are quite mixed. I think, you know, for some of the even lower tier cities, things are, are probably slower. But, you know, this is a huge country, so it's going to be mixed. And as Hyomi was saying, I think it's, you know, a classic example of urbanization. You know, people, you know, are, are moving to the city. That's why it's growing so fast. And that's going to be, you know, one of the longer term drivers of consumption in China. But just looking at it from a more bearish perspective, urbanization isn't as much of a, a, an underlier of growth that it used to be, right? Mm-hmm. And so a lot of people are now debating, is, is China just simply a value trap? I think, you know, the urbanization trend still is definitely there. Yeah, it's probably slowed down. Obviously, COVID has been a factor as well. But, you know, I think the trend is still there. As you know, sort of overall levels of urbanization are still really lagging versus, you know, versus the West. The question about whether China's a value trap, I mean, as we've talked about, there's, you know, it's such a huge economy. There are a lot of great companies that are just getting on with it and growing. Even in a slowing economy, there's still a lot of real, you know, growth sectors and there's a lot of consolidation happening with a lot, a lot of sectors as well. We met with, you know, one of the top paint companies in China. You know, they're sort of the number two player in the market, but their share is probably now just sort of low teens in terms of overall market share. This industry in the West is you're looking at sort of more in the 80s. So there's a really strong growth story there around consolidation. So we're looking at companies that can just be much, much bigger over time through that process of consolidation. And I think that's an, actually another theme that came out. The winners are getting stronger. That process of consolidation is really happening across a range of sectors. So I still find it a really rich place to find individual stock ideas, particularly now when sentiment is, is so negative and, and the valuations are more attractive. Hiromi, over, over to you. Same question. Do you see the same thing? Does it refer back to Ronald's point earlier about a K-shaped recovery? And one thing I'd love to hear from you on is, is the jewelry segment. I know that's an area that you've, um, you've delved into. So yes, our value trap can exist in certain pockets of the economy or certain pockets of the sectors. But I think putting the whole China into value trap is a bit of um, exaggeration because there are, as Dale said, many interesting dynamics happening in China and there are many money-making opportunities there that I can see. And as you said, even in the jewelry segment, very clear, yes, K-recovery trend, I have to say. So... At the low end and more in the uh, mass segment, the Chinese local jewelry franchises have been gaining a lot of market share through consolidation. There are so many mom and pop stores of the jewelry stores. And then these few large franchises have been really consolidating the market. So jewelry, especially gold, is very interesting because it's the value preservation tool for many Chinese consumers. So even when economy is slow, people are willing to buy up and spend on gold jewelry as a way of preserving their capital. At the high end, we can see how global luxury brands are talking about their business in China. Whether 
uh, the owners of global leading brands such as Cartier or Bankclip Apple, they're saying that out of the global businesses that they have, the China recovery, even in the fourth quarter last year, when it was under full lockdown, and also first quarter this year, when people were just coming out of uh, the COVID difficulties, business was very strong, registering over 20-30% year-on-year type of growth. Speaking of jewellery, our Asia editor Neil Goff also joined the China trip and caught up with Eric Xu, a consumer analyst based in Shanghai, to find out more about this segment, specifically gold jewellery, as, as Yomi mentioned, and whether it still holds weight with the China consumer. And here's an interesting fact. Chinese consumers accounted for 41% of overall gold jewellery demand in the first quarter of the year, while every other region around the world saw declines. Let's hear what's driving this. So Eric, we're here at a very busy shopping mall on a weekday afternoon in Anhui, uh, in the capital city of Hefei. And you brought me to this uh, jewelry shop, and it's one of several just kind of in a cluster here, uh, to talk about trends that you've been seeing in the jewelry market and uh, what it means about China's uh, consumer recovery. Sure. Um, Actually, this is a very good year for gold jewelry business. We see very strong consumer demand year to date, definitely leads any, uh, among all the consumer subcategories. So I would say that you can see the traffic for such a normal weekday afternoon, the consumer traffic is very strong. So the trend is that this year there's uh, three major drivers for a strong recovery for goods uh, space. So number one is consumer sentiment recovery. Though it's very gradual, but it's recovering more faster or uh, slower, it's recovering anyway. So as a discretionary, people tend to spend something, rewards themselves. So gold, uh, in the context of Chinese culture tradition, for good luck, for fortune. So people tend to buy some good jewelry to reward themselves that survived such a difficult year last year and to get ready for a brand new start for 2023. And also, second reason is the wedding. Because if people get married, they tend to buy something gold. If people have new baby bones, they tend to buy something gold. If, if business partner finally strike a business, then they buy some gold as gift, etc. So such kind of offline business activity or um, consumption activity also help a lot. And the third reason is the strong gold price also increase the investment demand for gold because they preserve value. And nowadays in China, we don't have a lot of investment methods that can assure you can preserve value. Okay, and it's, I mean, the recovery for gold jewelry in China has driven the global recovery for the industry. It is carrying the, the industry, at least in the last few months. But do you think this is something that can continue? Yeah, consumer purchase power recovery will definitely be the major driver from this time point from now on. Um, I would say that consumer purchase power will recover faster or slower again, it's recovering. And gold so far is still the most resilient category here because everyone knows that the world is messy, it's chaotic, and typically gold preserves value in a chaotic world. So Chinese people know that, so they come to gold to um, be risk averse or to preserve the value of their money, their cash. Thanks very much, Eric. Thank you, Neil.
Catherine, that was fascinating from Eric, wasn't it? And, and you know, when you think about Hyomi's comments on the jewelry sector, what Eric talked about with gold, and then all of us talked about property, it's that excess savings um, turning into spending that's going to be the real focus over the next couple of quarters, isn't it? Yeah, definitely. And just from my own experience, whenever I go into my jewelers, it's packed. <laughs> Although I would like to highlight their pricing point and their purchases are a lot higher than mine. Dale, on this point about pricing um, points and, and goods and services, Hiomi's already mentioned luxury. We heard from Eric. But you're also finding opportunities in sort of the value-focused end of the consumer yeah. sector. So what do you mean by this or, or what exactly are you finding? Yeah, I mean, it's really across a range of sectors, but I think of basically a discount retailer, effectively a dollar shop that's done a great job. I know there's a big focus on the shift online, which is which continues, but, you know, there's viable retail businesses. So, again, you know, for a sort of a, a discount retailer that can execute well, and these guys are executing well, there's real opportunity. I think another example is one of the biggest Coke bottlers in China. And it's been interesting how demand has actually held up over COVID and post-COVID. I think, you know, people sort of view that carbonated drink as a, you know, maybe a sort of a little luxury that people can look forward to. So I think that's a sort of another example. I guess you'd still put it at the lower end that's, uh, that's, been, that's been quite resilient as well. And you mentioned that paint company because that right. paint company used to do more industrial type of paint. And they've moved now into retail. They've got a big um, endorsement in terms of a high-profile person doing their retail brand. Right. Were they always going to do this, do you think, that strategy? Or is it because of COVID and them really trying to tap into another space to, for earnings-wise? I think the whole B2C side is something they've always focused on. I think there's extra emphasis now. And that makes complete sense. Um, if you look at sort of paint businesses globally, they can be a great business because you can actually really have a brand and, and sort of, you know, have pricing power on the back of that. Um, so I think that shift was always there, but I think it's been accelerated. And obviously, you know, the whole B2B side, if you're, you know, supplying the big developers, particularly the private developers, as we've talked about earlier, a lot of them are, are struggling. You know, I think that's probably accelerated that shift as well, you know, focus more on the consumer as opposed to the business side. Yeah, I mean, I want to pick up on the mid-market segment of the economy. And, and, you know, just as Dale described, we've got, and you described, we have the high end, which seems to be doing okay, low end as opportunities there. But we've got a substantially bigger middle class now in China. And so that's a big segment of the economy. Is that a concern? So I see it more as an opportunity than uh, something to worry about. Because consumer segment in China is actually very complicated than what might want to look at. It's a big populated country with huge divergence in the income level and also experience level of these consumers. So even a middle-class consumer, very typical middle-class consumer, she or he can make decision on his or her spending on different standards. In terms of this, you know, a bit cautious economic outlook and weaker sentiment around income expectation and employment outlook, I think people are making very smart decisions. Okay, my wallet size remains the same, or it's only getting slightly better than what it was before. Then how should I split it and allocate across different products and spendings? So I think what really matters here is the brand equities and how each brand is executing their business in China. It's less about local brands or international brands, or it's also less about whether it's high-end or low-end. It's just really about whether you can find the right consumer segment, you can communicate well with this consumer segment, and you provide the real value to them. That's why I think 
China consumption market from stock picking perspective, actually, it's getting a lot more interesting. Dale, given what Hiomi's just said, and then taking this into, con- into consideration mm. along with this buildup of household savings we keep on hearing about, so right. 35%, 37%, so huge levels. How do you think this will be released and it, across what sectors, you know, outside of property, outside of these luxury brands and loaded brands, what, what else are you looking at? Yeah, I, I, I would agree with Hiomi. I think, I th- you know, obviously services are leading the recovery. I think that will continue. You've got to, you know, think about people that have been locked up for, you know, for a couple of years. Definitely anything travel related. Obviously, domestic travel is, uh, is recovering. International travel, I think, will, uh, you know, will, will definitely increase. We've, we've focused a lot today on the consumer, but you know, I think with a general recovery, you've, you know, there's a lot of industrials. We talked about paint. There's a lot of areas where, of, of industrials where you know, you're seeing that process of consolidation, but also domestic substitution uh, across sectors as well, uh, sort of a moving away from you know, the, the, the foreign suppliers. You know, as, as companies you know, improve their product, they're moving up the value chain, there's sort of definitely an opportunity in that area as well. And then lastly, I'd say financials you know, was with a recovery. You know, a lot of them have, have really lagged, but really do fit into that story of, of just rising penetration over time. Mm-hmm. You know, if I look at an area like insurance, we've still got very low levels of penetration. Things may have slowed, but the consumer is still getting richer. And as they get richer, they'll want more protection. Um, so I think, you know, in financial services in general, there's a lot of opportunity uh, as well. Dale, banks are interesting, financial services broadly. We've heard a lot about SOE reform recently, and obviously a lot of banks fall into that dynamic. What do you think about that, and how does that translate into investment opportunities? Yeah, we're definitely seeing more talk um, about you know sort of reform, a bigger focus on ROE, which is uh, you know which was which is definitely you know a positive and can can be a real driver for these stocks because a lot of them are really cheap. If we're talking about the banks, I think you still need to be wary around the very big ones. They can be you know I think called on you know, for national service at times. So for me, it's sort of the next rung down are, are more interesting. But, you know, I think from a risk reward perspective, actually, you know, do look do look pretty positive. These are, you know, these are relatively cheap companies. And so if that story around inc- improving returns and also, you know, improving capital return, you know, more, ca- more capital, you know, potential, you know, capital coming back in the form of dividends and the form of buybacks, we need to see it actually implemented. So far, it's, it's more being discussed, but we haven't actually seen it implemented. So it's something we're watching closely. Thanks, Dale. Uh, let's go back to Neil in Shanghai now. He also met up with Eric C, a Hong Kong-based analyst who covers the auto industry, to find out whether some of the household savings we're talking about are being used to upgrade to things like electric vehicles. So, Eric, uh, we're here in the city of Hefei at a Mercedes dealership, kind of on the outskirts of town. It's a row of uh, several car dealerships, foreign and domestic. What have you been seeing in terms of sales in the car market this year, both traditional engines and EVs? I think overall, people had a lot of expectation in the beginning of the year for the car market as we reopened. And I think overall, the pace was slower than expected because of more price competitions uh, in the early of the year, causing people to have wait and see attitude. But the result in sort of the local sales really uh, vary. For example, for the store that we are visiting here, it's surprisingly resilient and the sales is quite stable despite all the EV competitions or price competitions we're seeing outside of of this city. So I would say uh, overall, I think the outlook is, is gradually improving. 
Okay, and then how much of that decent outlook do you attribute to uh, being in Hefei or a tier two city versus being a, you know, a very high-end car brand? Yeah, I think it's a combination of both. Being in the Hefei city, we see their local industry is growing, and as a result, we are seeing population flowing in. And these populations are generally working in higher income jobs, and that also benefit the sort of growth in premium brand. And for, for a city like Hefei, uh, because it's still a growing city, we are seeing less competitions in terms of the premium brands, where there are only very few, or one or two sort of store per premium brand, and that helps with the competitive environment. So we've got in front of us a Mercedes uh, EV, is it? Yes. Shall we uh, hop in and take a look? Yeah. Nice. So this is at a different price point than, um, you know, your domestically made EVs. Yeah, yeah. I think every brand is taking a different strategy relative to the local brands or the other luxury brands. And there are brands who want to maintain the status of, of their brand and don't want to put too many discounts or have a different pricing strategy versus their corresponding gasoline car products. But the, the luxury brands like this and a lot of the foreign luxury brands have been kind of slower to jump into the fray with the EVs in China, right? It's still more the, the local players plus kind of Tesla, right? Yeah, I think the global brands, they will still need to take some time to develop their EV platform as EV electrification really accelerated during the three years of COVID period uh, locally. And so just in the Shanghai Auto Show, I think a lot of overseas OEMs are starting to learn what has happened in China in the last few years in terms of electrifications. And it would take them some time to absorb that and bring out better products in the next two to three years. Great. Thanks very much, Eric. Thank you so much. Some really interesting points that Eric and Neil made. You know, one of our other portfolio managers was telling us how the Mercedes brand did a survey with consumers or customers, and the number one request or criticism was that they wanted a bigger emblem right. on their car. Right. So that sort of aspirational purchase still alive and well in China. Yeah, for sure, for sure. And uh, I think it's really interesting to kind of see the dynamics of of the auto sector and EVs, isn't it? And Dale, on that, I'm curious because I know you've been a little bit cautious on on the automobile sector, particularly when it comes to it being in a bit of an oversupply state right now. How bad is that? Do you see opportunities there? How, how are you sort of looking for value in that sector? Yeah, I think, you know, that we'll definitely see things recover um, over time. But yeah, my main concern is around competition. You think about the number of new players that have entered this industry at a time when you've got obviously huge technical change. Just the amount of new players, the amount of capacity that's been added, um, I think competitively we're in, heading into a really tough period. You know, we've been hearing from companies over the last couple of years that they could sell more cars if they had components. Well, the supply chain's now catching up. So I'm actually pretty negative on the OEMs. I mean, I think take nothing away from the Chinese suppliers. I think, you know, I think that the Chinese OEMs will take more global share. They're very competitive. I don't really see anyone you know, closing that gap in terms of competition, just given the volumes that they've got. But if I think about the domestic market, it's going to be, it's going to be quite competitive. So I focused more on upstream. So the supply chain, I think a lot of those stocks have corrected. So thinking about, you know, companies that are supplying into the battery space, some of the electronic components. I'm also interested in, you know, companies that are going to benefit from that competition. Um, so companies that are supplying the advertising, 
I think, you know, this is going to drive, you know, a lot of increased advertising. Yeah, would you agree? Actually, I agree a lot to what Dale just said. So I also remain a big underweight in auto sector, like OEMs and supply chain all included. Uh, having said that, I think there will be some cyclical recovery that we can see here because uh, along with uh, property, auto is the second largest consumption spending item in China. And we know that it has remained weaker than expectation, like demand recovery has been a bit weaker while supply has become better. So there was a bit more price competition, like Eric and Dale said earlier. But I think um, some of the recently announced government stimulus includes more, you know, higher penetration in EV by providing more subsidies there. So I think it's actually um, quite important because just because they are subsidy, people are not buying two autos versus one auto. However, if they were holding on to buying something, then with this newly introduced subsidies, they can pull for the demand. And I think that is important in terms of restoring confidence that we have been talking quite uh, a few times today. So, Hiromi, you can't avoid the subject of demographics. And I guess there's a few things at play there. You've got an aging population in China. We talked a little bit about unemployment in the youth sector on the rise. I guess those are kind of not painting the best picture, are they, for, for potential demand? I'm wondering how you see the demographic side playing out as well. Yes, indeed. Uh, this peaking population in China uh, can cast cloud over the long-term outlook. Having said that, again, I always focus on different pockets of opportunities within this macro environment that we are in. So, for example, one thing very important, I think, that we need to find out from the companies is who is driving quality growth versus volume-driven growth. So in, in this angle, I continue to like some of the uh, food and beverage names in China, such as Bottled Mineral Water Company. Again, they are two, three times more expensive than the normal filtered water. But as people become more aware of health and the brand equity and the quality of the products, people are willing to spend one or two yen more on these things. So I think these companies who can benefit from the pricing power can really uh, generate longer term returns for the investors. And also for any company, they can actually address a few different uh, segments from very young kids to older generations. So for example, dairy company called Mengnu, they used to have big infant formula business, but now they are focusing more on senior nutritions because that's the growing market. So the companies who can make this flexible strategy and have great execution capability, these matter a lot more than just focusing on the demographic trends. Oh, it's everyone is getting old and population picking out. I think focusing on the company-specific strategies is a lot more important from investment perspective. So Dale, you know, what Hiomi just described sounds like a very entrepreneurial spirit to me. And I know you focus a lot on companies before they list. It doesn't feel like maybe the best environment to create a new company and, and go through that fundraising process and then, you know, wait, wait to get to an IPO stage. Is that true? Or do you, do you see a lot of activity in that area? There's definitely, definitely opportunity. We've talked about some of the technical changes that are, you know, that are happening, obviously, you know, the whole AI trend that we're seeing globally, that's, you know, very much underway um, in China as well. 
um, even areas like software. I mean, we focus a lot on the consumer, but the enterprise, you're looking at very low levels of SaaS-type businesses in terms of penetration. So there's, there's definitely a lot of opportunity. You know, I think for private markets in general, a lot of money was raised you know, around that sort of 2021 period. That's starting to run out for a lot of companies. So the funding need is there as well. I think there's generally less competition in terms of, you know, investors looking for these opportunities as well. So um, we're actually seeing increasing opportunity um, in, the, in, in the private space. At better valuations than we were looking at, you know, a couple, of, a couple of years ago. You know, we can debate whether, you know, private has corrected as much as the public markets, but it definitely has corrected. And, uh, you know, we're seeing, you know, much better value out there and the opportunities are definitely there. You know, on the subject of value, Dale, you, you manage a China strategy, right. but you also look at our entire region, including right. Australia and Japan. Right. And Japan very much in favor. So it used to be the, you know, the market that no one would go near, right. total value trap, now in vogue. Can you see any similarities between China and Japan? And the argument that China is going to end up like Japan with deflation, do right. you think that could happen? You know, obviously a big factor driving the Japanese market has been around this point around capital return. So you've got good businesses generating good cash flows um, and a lot of that capital hasn't come back to shareholders. But that's really changing, you know, in Japan. I think there's definitely potential for that, you know, in, in China as well. You know, as we were talking about earlier with the SOEs, talking about, about higher returns, more capital return. Um, but on the private side as well, that's something that came through in our meetings this time as well. There's definitely a lot more happening in dividends and, and, and buybacks. So these tech companies that we've followed for years that, you know, have sort of grown their share count pretty much every year, are turning, they've reached the point where that share, outstanding share count is actually declining. So they're still, you know, making sure their employees are incentivized with 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 shares, but their buy, you know, the buybacks are offsetting. So you're actually starting to see, you know, the total um, your share count start to shrink. Some really significant buybacks, you know, even from the big the big tech companies. And, you know, I agree with you. It's much more of a focus, you know, for investors in Japan right now. But I think there's pretty good stories around capital return in the Chinese market as well. Hiomi, some final thoughts from you, please, because there's a lot of criticism, a lot of questions about whether the consumer, regardless of the household savings rate, um, whether the theme is in fact still intact. So what would you say in response to this? I think this theme actually remains very, very strong. In a way, it's a bit like the, the very common question I got a year ago, is China investable? So I think at the end of the day, it comes down to the risk reward that's offered in the investment opportunities. And in the China consumer space, um, as you said, I think the spending capacity remains there. Cyclically, I think there is less appetite for consumers to spend on goods rather than uh, experiences. That's why it's stalling some of the recovery that market was hoping to see. But that doesn't break the whole long-term story of the structural growth in certain areas in the consumption. And as I have said many times before, I think China is a very big economy and the consumers there also are very divergent and colorful, very, very different. So what matters for us is to find out companies who can deliver the right experiences and goods and um, the consumption to the Chinese consumers who are willing, willing to pay for the price for that. So in that end, I think um, it's, a, it's a great, and actually the current market, uh, the, where the sentiment is at and where the valuations offer, 
it's a, it's a great opportunity from a stock picking perspective in the consumption space. Thanks, Yomi, and, and thanks, Dale. Um, that was a really fascinating conversation today, wasn't it, Catherine? And we covered a ton of ground. One thing that always jumps out at me when it comes to China is the world being so data dependent, China having just exited from COVID, you know, not that long ago. The markets bounced back. We don't really have that much proof as to whether the recovery has taken hold yet, do we? Yet some of the data is a little bit tenuous. And I think what we've heard is getting there on the ground, meeting companies, you start to drill into it and you pick up some some things that you won't pick up from the from the macro data. Yeah, exactly. And, and you know, as we keep on talking about, there are a number of opportunities, uh, both hidden as well as sort of recognized. And and that's what makes China so interesting. And, and from a consumer perspective, I'm going to go home and tell my husband that every time I buy something, I'm contributing to economic growth. <laughs> Definitely so. And even in that gold jewelry space, right? So um, look, let's look forward to it. I think we heard some really positive longer term trends here and, and uh, more to come. I'm sure we'll talk about it in future episodes. But that brings us to the end of this episode in particular. And a big thank you to our guests, Dale Nichols and Hyomi G, and to our other contributors, Eric Zhu and Eric C. And thank you for listening. If you want to read more of what's being covered today, please go to your local Fidelity website or visit fidelityinternational.com. Producers were Rory Fong and Neil Goff with production support from Tommy Sue, Keith Chun, and Kim Juko. And of course, the editor is Richard Edgar. Until next time, from all of us at Fidelity, goodbye. Goodbye. This podcast is for investment professionals only and should not be relied on by private investors. This podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is intended only for the person or entities to which it is sent. It must not be reproduced or circulated to any other party without prior permission of Fidelity. The value of investments can go down as well as up, so you may get back less than you invest. For other important legal notices, please visit your local Fidelity website.